0: This is... Make it kind. Make M.I.P. With marshmallow, my Mark Thompson.
1: Make it kind.
0: Get woke.
1: The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes!
0: almost time for the run for the roses again a really big deal and exciting time in american culture and history and sports um as a kid it was something to watch those 60 seconds of excitement grew up in nashville not far from louisville new folk who used to go to louisville for the derby uh and uh shared it with my children i've never been um but it's always an exciting day. Later in life, I learned, ladies and gentlemen, um, why lawn jockeys were often black, and of course, then learned that and in, in, in the early days, all jockeys <laughs> were African American
1: pretty much oh,
0: yeah and um there was a uh you all know one of the uh one of our venerable publications magazines that went out of business was emerge uh and they did two covers one was with clarence thomas with a handkerchief on his head it's very controversial but it went viral before viral was a word because it wasn't social media yet. and then the second cover they did was clarence thomas as a lawn jockey. Um, And so lawn jockeys came to symbolize uh, African-American memorabilia uh, akin to minstrelsy and whatnot. And so I never could, and many of us who were enlightened by that never could quite look at the Kentucky Derby quite the same way. Still, you know, great to see the horses, beautiful creations of, of God, but still it's just something about it the mint juleps all of that well my guest today doesn't help (laughs) because she has a book to tell us even more um about uh the history of kentucky uh and the song that we hear she is the uh visiting honors faculty fellow at bellarmine university she's Written for Vogue, Ohio Valley History, the Journal of Southern History, Newsweek, the Wall Street Journal, the New England Review. She's published several books, but her latest we want to talk about today on Make It Plain, and we welcome her. Emily Bingham, her book, My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an Iconic American Song. Emily, welcome to Make It Plain. How are you?
1: I'm doing good. Um, I'm really so excited to share this with you and uh, see how you react to this and the kind of questions you're bringing already. You're asking me about things that nobody's asked me about yet, and I am super, super excited to go into it.
0: Well, first of all, can, is is it is it really okay for you to write this book and still live in Kentucky? I mean, is, <laughs> is, that, is that wise?
1: Well, I've gotten some 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 people have expressed some concern for my um, I don't know my 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 comfort I suppose but you know I've, I've I'm a very lucky person I love my state I feel like this is part of how we love and you know how we love is to be honest sometimes you have sometimes it takes uh, a long hard look and our past has been deeply whitewashed and. That's something that I feel a responsibility to understand and help others understand.
0: Well, and then actually, it's kind of in your blood, isn't it? it don't you come? From, I understand you come from a journalism family.
1: I do, I do. So my family has deep roots here in Kentucky. They owned media properties here for uh, about seventy-five years, starting in the early twentieth century. And, um, and then they were all sold. So I did not grow up being part of it, you know, as professionally, but I grew up with it certainly in my blood and the conversation in terms of what, 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 what mattered. And what mattered surely was, you know, holding up a mirror to ourselves as, as people and as citizens and, you know, whether that's the Kentucky Derby or coal mining or um, school, desegregation. I mean, these were all things that were constantly in, uh, yes, in the family discussions around the dinner table. Uh, What wasn't talked about a whole lot was, you know, some of the more difficult things in our own past, and that included uh, slave owning. So I'll get that out there right now. Um, And, you know, the probably just the expected um, demeaning way that some people were treated um, even long after slavery ended. So I've that's been something I've been trying to reckon with in my own life for many years.
0: So, so your, your family owned slaves?
1: Well, yeah, going back on both sides, my mother's side and my father's side. And as a historian, you know, I also, that's something I've taken seriously to try to understand and get a, a better grip on. Um, yeah in North Carolina and in the Washington, D.C., Virginia area.
0: Does writing a book like this, does that help you with your own reckoning?
1: You know, it helps in the sense, I think, that I'm not going to perpetuate that sort of silence or just not talking about it a lot to the next generation. I know for sure that my kids are going to know and all my cousins and you know, siblings, kids are going to know that's never going to be a secret they're not going to be aware of. And so when these discussions about race today come up, they are not going to be able to imagine that that nothing they have <laughs> has anything or nothing they experience has has, you know, is, is totally separate from that history.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I appreciate you being forthcoming about that. Uh, one, as we are all in this conversation about reparations, Mm -hmm. but two, what you're doing with the book. I mean, the other, I mean, it's one thing to be in Kentucky, Emily, but obviously, as you know, there's this whole debate around, um, stopping CRT, which is really, um, something else because CRT has never been taught in elementary and secondary school. This is about you know, ending the accurate teaching of history, um, and your book kind of flies in the face of that movement and what Fox News is trying to do.
1: Well, I have a Ph.D. in American history, and even I wasn't taught CRT. <laughs> um, I think <laughs> uh, right, right. I, 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 I know what they're doing. I know what they're doing. It's it's a it's a clever move we need to just talk about history in this country. Let's just say it. I mean, there's nothing CRT or mysterious about that. It's it, There's no you know acronym for it. We just need to be honest with one another and have real conversations and hear one another. I mean, what I'm conscious of in the last 15 or 20 years, what's different and what I think is provoking this bash, backlash is that Black people in this country are not as restrained as they were for so many years, including my own growing up. And so, wow, it's pretty surprising when people who look like me actually are being asked to listen um, and not just ignore voices that have been, you know, just, you know, shuddered and, and constrained and told not to speak up or else you might not, Keep your job I mean that's still a risk today, but that's becoming even a tiny risk for someone like me in a state like Kentucky but I think that's all backlash to you know the fact that we are we are changing somewhat in our ability to listen and our desire to listen and hear one another
0: yeah yeah well well congratulations uh, um, on the book um, and I, I know this was you know not on our agenda to discuss but as you are forthcoming about your reckoning um I, I hope that you know we can have further discussions about that because you know we need folks like you who are honest about that and are coming up with ways for that reckoning to actually happen you aren't the only one going through that but to the book my old kentucky home first of all um, um I always ask people when they do when they do really innovative and extraordinary things like this, um perhaps even revolutionary things like this. When the bug bit him. So like when when did you hear that song one last time and say um, I'm so
1: sorry. Did, I'm back with no, you. Problem.
0: no problem. When did you hear that song so, somebody's calling you to tell you not talk about it. When somebody somebody from Kentucky when when uh um, when did you hear that song for the last time and say, nope, I can't do this anymore. I need to write about and inform people what this really is. How, how did that come about for you?
1: Well, Reverend Mark, I think it would be great to just, I'd like to make sure that people at the beginning understand what this song is, because even a lot of people who come from, um, you know, our black community aren't totally aware of what um, this song is about. So I'm just going to say, this is a song about the horrors of the slave trade, right? There is nothing ambiguous about it. If you look at the lyrics of it, the full original lyrics. Okay. So we're going back to the 1850s when it was written. Um, It is that we all know your audience knows that that is a part of history that involved the separation of families and, broke millions of people's hearts and cost so many lives. It's a national atrocity, right? Okay, so this book, if you, re, you know, you, if you look at the lyrics that Stephen Foster, the author of the song wrote in the 1850s, it tells of a man being sold for cash from Kentucky, sent down river, where he will die in the cane fields of the deep south never to see his family or the people who loved him again. But he's also singing from the position of, um, take me back to Kentucky, the happy home of slavery (laughs) is kind of the way it's positioned. So the song is really complicated in that it contains the atrocity of of the slave trade. It also contains this, this very glowing depiction of, life in Kentucky under slavery on a plantation. So that's the really mixed up, complicated thing. And yet it's not that complicated because how can a song that is about that, that even has its roots in that, how is it that our culture is so wound up and twisted that a song like that is sung in these celebratory moments? So everyone, you mentioned the Derby right at the beginning. We're about to have our Kentucky Derby, the 148th running, the longest running sporting event in this entire nation. And my old Kentucky home is this like, it's like this emblematic tradition to sing it right as the horses step on the track and everyone is super excited and everyone stands up and a lot of people cry when this song is played and when they sing it. Okay. I mean, a lot of people, I have cried. (laughs) I got to come clean there. But what is, amazing here is if you think about it, do people in Germany before soccer matches get up and sing songs about the Holocaust?
0: Mm. <laughs> mm.
1: <laughs> Have you ever been to a cricket match in South Africa where they sing a song about apartheid?
0: You, I mean, something. even an
1: anti-apartheid song. I don't think they sing those either.
0: <laughs> you're saying so, something, Emily. Ooh. Okay.
1: It's it's the setting. It's the way that this has become this mass. You know, how many songs do we sing in mass? I mean, there are only a couple, right? The national anthem, lift up your voice and sing in some places. (laughs) Great one. Um, But um, maybe take me out to the ballpark. There's this sense of communal, like, like rush of emotion when this, this song is played. And it's not just the derby. It's football games, basketball games, high school, college, uh, you know, formal events, um, weddings, you know. But I do want to put the shine the light on the biggest one, which where over one hundred and fifty thousand people together experience this old, old song about the slave trade.
0: So now, just just to be clear, um, when they sing it, because I don't remember. Um, when they sing it at the derby do they sing all the lyrics the darkies and all of that do they say that out loud still
1: so what happened is this song in every verse contained the word that you just used which explained who was being talked about right in 1853 and onward but over the years a lot of Black people didn't like that word and they made it, you know, they tried to get the song banned and we can go into that later. They tried to use it in ways that were more dignified somehow. But ultimately after, I would say about a hundred (laughs) years of saying, we don't really like this, um, eventually, slowly, that word was dropped and substituted for things like people or folks or uh, something. Um, and so what is song today is the sun shines bright on the old Kentucky home, Tis summer the people are gay, the corn tops ripe and the meadows in the bloom, and the birds make music all the day. The Young folks roll on the little cabin floor, all merry and happy and bright, by and by hard times comes a knocking at the door. Then my old Kentucky home, good night. So who knows when they're singing this, what that's about?
0: <laughs> yeah, the people, your, so, and, and what you're saying is, so literally what that song is talking about is is the young folks are Black people, right? The
1: little cabin floor.
0: Right, Run around the floor, and then there's a knock at the door to sell them off from their families and it, everybody's singing that and and most folks don't even realize what it is they're singing
1: and the only and even when that first verse had just the d word that you used in there you know people then knew it was kind of about slavery but obviously that is a whitewashed depiction of slavery okay but then when that d word gets taken out and substituted Something else happens. I think what happens to the song in, you know, starting in the 1950s and moving, I mean, it didn't change until the 1970s at Churchill Downs, where the races run, and it didn't change in the state of Kentucky officially until the 1980s. But just saying, you know, say the people who don't remember or forgot it was ever there, those people are able to sing a song in which slavery, which was its subject, is ghosted. Like, just ghosted.
0: Yeah, that's a, that's an interesting way of, of putting it. Yeah, that's exactly what it is being being ghosted, as a matter of fact. It, it's so. Yeah, we got to we got to do something about this, uh, <laughs> obviously. Um, the other thing about uh, about this is, I mean, even the event Churchill Downs does not um, represent or the the, the patrons there i mean these these we're talking about still to this day pretty much a a a privileged class of folk aren't we
1: i mean it's a complicated thing because i don't you know churchill downs once had segregated grandstands and clubhouse where only only white people could could attend that those days are gone um tickets to the derby are expensive if you're going to sit in the nice seats and you know However, there's another option for people to go to the Derby. It's called the infield. And that's where about 50, 60, 70,000 people get together and have a party. And it's not the same as the, you know, clubhouse, jockey club, you know, set set up. It's, It's just a big old flat expanse where people are enjoying Hopefully a beautiful day, <laughs> um, and it's kind of rowdy at times, and it's but it only costs I don't know forty or fifty dollars, but there is a long history of Churchill Downs in this city, seeming and 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 having a reputation of not being a very welcoming place. I mean that goes back you know for black citizens. Um, that, you know, goes back to, yes, the tickets can be expensive. Yes, there was a time when Black people were not welcome, absolutely. And yes, Black jockeys were, you know, completely run out of this of sport that they literally dominated at the turn of the century, the twentieth the turn of the 20th century. So 120 years ago, more or less, um, a, a a space in this nation that had um, room for Black excellence and the. Uh, you know, equal earnings, uh, professionally, uh, was shut down for uh, for for that for that demographic. So that left a scar in in the black community as well. So Churchill Downs and other racetracks have plenty to talk about when it comes to race. But you know, and certainly class-wise, there's a lot of money um, that's sliding around in this community during Derby Week. Um, that's part of what I mean. That is our brand, man. That is <laughs> that is how millions and millions of dollars and company, you know, businesses make their money. Down for to the parking people who let people park in their yards, to the hotels, to the you know restaurants, you know, all of it.
0: Is there was there a relationship between the prevalence of black jockeys and the singing of the song? I mean, you almost had to wonder whether it was some type of balance of compensation people seeing black jockeys on the field at churchill downs and singing this song while they're out there riding horses do we know whether or not that has it and and so and also too is this the official anthem of the state
1: yes okay so great questions yes this is the kentucky state anthem and it was adopted uh in 1928 so this is also important the song was written by a Northerner from Pittsburgh who was writing for blackface minstrel shows and to sell sheet music, so this isn't even a Kentucky product. And I, my point in bringing it up in response to your question about the association with like black jockeys and 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 Kentucky and the Derby is it didn't actually get adopted in Kentucky until the 1920s, and it was a gradual thing. It was seen as an opportunity to uh, kind of revamp the state's image into something more gracious and um, appealing to tourists than the sort of wild Kentucky feuds, um, you know, gun-toting, you know, mountain people or something. Um, so so this, is, this is all about marketing. I, I firmly believe. And for 100 years, Kentucky has had this as its brand. So in terms of timeline, your question regarding the exclusion of Black riders in the Derby and also all Black horsemen, trainers, owners, it became extremely difficult for them to continue their work. Um, but that was actually pretty well complete by the time Kentuckians... Had the brilliant idea of taking this old minstrel song and lifting it up into the sort of enshrining it the way it has been done here here in the state for a hundred years.
0: And um, I mean, it was Jim Crow,
1: right? It was Jim Crow.
0: Yeah, Jim Crow, and and yes, it. I mean, it was a song meant to be performed by by minstrels and in minstrel shows. Tell us what we what we know about what you know about the author, like Stephen Foster, I believe now. He was, if I'm not mistaken, Mitch McConnell's father.
1: <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, man. I, couldn't uh, that. You know, I, I said that, y'all. McConnell me being me being draw a straight line between himself and Stephen Foster. I bet he would have done it. <laughs> But Mitch McConnell is on the record on this. He said two years ago that it would be a terrible, terrible thing to ever separate this song from the Derby or anything in this state because it is such a deep and, and profound and uh, positive part of our, uh, of our traditions, our culture here in Kentucky. Um, he and I aren't, don't see eye to eye on that question. But yeah. you know, you ask about Stephen Foster. Um, I don't know about his geneal- genealogical relationship to Mitch McConnell, our um, our long what thirty six year uh, senator. Um, <laughs> but but he was a guy. He was born in eighteen twenty six, and he died in Pittsburgh. He died in New York in eighteen sixty four with thirty seven cents in his pocket. He was the child of aspiring middle class people um, and professionals. um, But his family had a lot of ups and downs financially, which a lot of Americans did, like, you know, even, you know, even slaveholders had ups and downs. (laughs) So anyway, he was struggling at times, and so were his parents. But he did not want to knuckle down and get a proper job. Instead, he Did a little bit of work on the Ohio River, where his brother owned a shipping company. And you can imagine in the 1840s in Cincinnati, what he saw there. Right. We saw cotton. We saw slaves, We saw industrializing America building on both of those things. Um, And then, but he had a knack for music and he'd been playing around with music since he was a little kid. We don't know what he thought in his heart of hearts because he didn't leave us a diary, but we do know that he was writing songs and that he also played in Black, Little Blackface minstrel Show himself as a kiddo, thought that was fun, blacked up, sang Cold Black Rose and other songs, "Longtail Blue, that were extremely popular. And I think your listeners are probably pretty familiar that, you know, um, you know, this was the dominant musical form of the time. Right, if rap music is our dominant form of the time, blackface minstrelsy was in the eighteen forties and fifties the thing. It just was the thing, Yeah. and that was how he could and, make yeah. money.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and at, I always like you know when I when I when I taught you know broadcast and broadcast history in school, people always find it jarring when Emily's talking about folks didn't just you know it was an evolution. I mean, it was a, a progression to this day the most popular radio show in history and the most popular television show in history was Amos and Andy. And, and just to show you how pervasive it was um, as she writes in the book, black performers sang my old Kentucky home, black people watched Amos and Andy. I mean, it was when the NAACP came out against Amos and Andy, there were those in the black community that didn't agree because that's all we knew. That's all anybody knew. That was unfortunately the entertainment of the hour, but here's the other thing. Here's the other bombshell in your book that many people may not know. There were more Kentuckians in the Union Army than the Confederacy. Is, is that accurate?
1: That's right. That is right, and and especially you know when we also take into account all the um, African American enlistees who joined the Union in Kentucky uh, by the thousands and thousands and thousands. This was the second highest enrollment for Black uh, Civil War soldiers after Mississippi, which obviously Mississippi has a far, far higher population of, of enslaved people than Kentucky ever did, actually. Um, so that that says a lot. Um, there was just it was. Yes. But Kentucky had more people on the side of the union, even white people than um, than on the side of the Confederacy. And a lot of people think that and, and try to write the very surprising uh, write about this surprising argument. And I think this is pretty well accepted that Kentucky kind of joined the Confederacy after the war.
0: And, and, and I think that was the case, I mean, let's face it, and, and I'm sure you're, you know, you're a historian, you know this better than me. I think we're finding that a lot of the uh, um, zeal and fanaticism for the Confederacy was after the World War, the, 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 the hagiography, if you will, of what the Confederacy was, the sentimentalism um, that, that didn't exist at first. And you know, now it's become in, in vogue, unfortunately. Oh, to say I was—you know—my family was in the Confederacy, uh, just, which is, which is utterly uh, insane. This folks is an important piece of work, and maybe we should renew this movement to do something about this song. I live in New York, as many of you know. I live across the street from Yankee Stadium, which is my second home. <laughs> and when the, when this the story came out, I didn't know that Kate Smith. Had been involved in some racist behavior, so you know every at every ball game they sing "God Bless America" and take me out to the ball game. And when they found out Kate Smith's history, Yankee Stadium stopped playing Kate Smith's version of "God Bless America." Thankfully, that's the space we're in. And it wasn't a movement; it was just it came out online, and the Yankees said, "Uh, uh-uh, we're not even going to get into that. We're not even going to wait for somebody to do a protest." So, folks, we need to perhaps think about: Are there still people out there, kind of? mobilizing and saying that something should be done about this all?
1: I am really hoping the book has that um, has that as one of its effects. Um, there, The reality, Reverend Mark, is just so few people know what we're talking about today. The, the understanding, the level of, of awareness is just not there yet. And in terms of members of the black community, this has been brought up year over year over year, but not by I would say in an organized in an organized way. And, right. and and to be perfectly frank, I take the position that for this to change and and really for the well, the right thing to do is for white people to carry that banner. This is a song that was created by and for white people about an imaginary mythic Stereotyped, cruel, and damaging image of Black people, and it was created for the amusement, pleasure, enjoyment, and sentimental—you know—you uh, know—sort of release, right? Those tears, we're talking about those tears, that sentimental release for for the benefit of people who were not Black, but yet on a story of of immense Black pain, and in the whole history of civil rights movement in this country, there have been threats to black human beings and their ability to hold a job or go into a certain place or travel or uh, vote obviously, or be physically secure. Those are, And some of those are, we're still dealing with them. A song was, you know, there was awareness that this was not, you know, a great thing, that it was a, 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 it was hurtful, it was annoying but in the pan, you know, panoply of issues facing um, the black community, this was not the most pressing, right? So my argument is that this is a step that white folks should be considering that because it's something they created and have enjoyed that can, I also hope at the same time, if, if this step could be made, it opens up a door to an understanding of all the other things that are that like woven into the DNA that are part of what makes me cry um, or people I know cry and that we just haven't understood. We have not, yes. we have not listened. And so if we could make this step, possibly, that would be a way of, of demonstrating the t- a tip of an iceberg that is part of the long work that we all have to do.
0: Uh, so I need a little. So in that vein, or before we go, I need a little help. The the sun shines bright in the old Kentucky home. That's how it goes, right? You got it. <laughs> it's summer. The darkies are gay, and then it, skip ahead. The young folks roll on the little cabin floor, all merry, all happy, and bright. By and by, hard times come. Back. So I'm going to understand the psychology of this. It, is the singer? emotional about uh his own property being sold off or is this someone who you know owns us as property but yet at the same time is kind of sad about what's going on? it's a little confusing what the emotion what what the emotion is do you have any insight into that the I mean, psychology I can give you my
1: reading and you know okay. that's and 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 you know one of the things about music, right, is it? it is very malleable. And Stephen Foster himself wants, wanted that. I mean, he wanted to appeal to the broadest popular possible audience, right? So he didn't, he, he, he actually took things out of this song in his earlier version that made it even clearer what was going on. The original song was called Old Uncle Tom, Goodnight, instead of Old Kentucky Home, Goodnight. Um, taking, lifting right out of the Uncle Tom's Cabin story of a, a man enslaved in Kentucky saying goodbye to his, his home in Kentucky and being shipped downriver, And the, I think it's helpful to, you know, I, I think it's mostly written in the voice of that man being, being ripped from that home, if you know, that house, that cabin where, Uh, things seem pretty happy, (laughs) right, to a place that's much darker. And so the last verse has um, goes, the head must bow and the back will have to bend wherever the D word may go. A few more days and the trouble all will end in a field where the sugar canes grow. A few more days for to tote the weary load. No matter, twill never be light. A few more days till we totter in the road. Then my old Kentucky home, good night. And then Foster did something real interesting. He said the chorus, weep no more my lady. Weep no more today. We will sing one song for the old Kentucky home the old Kentucky home far away. What do you and, think? And that's that's kind
0: of strange, because it, it's, it's almost as if a part of it is in the voice of an enslaved person.
1: Well, isn't that what Blackface Minstrelsy did, right? It took yeah, but, the voices of enslaved yeah. people and tried to yeah. like pretend. It's, it is literally impersonation.
0: And so, for people to be singing in 2022, in that voice, and then crying all over themselves about it, there, there's some, yeah, there needs to be. They need to put 150,000 people in group therapy uh, <laughs> for, for that. <laughs> um, who was I talking to the other day? A good friend of mine. Uh, I, I, you know, ironically, Tamika Mallory, who led a lot of the Breonna Taylor protests, she came to Louisville.
1: Yep, yeah.
0: yep. Tamika just okay. went to, just came back from Africa. I saw that. And one of the revelations she made, Emily, when she called me just the other day and she said, you know, Mark, and this goes to your reckoning, um, and and you're you're in the process. See, that's why everybody need to read this book so they can start processing this themselves. This injustice, slavery and its ongoing vestiges have not only harmed African Americans, but have harmed white people too. And a bare minimum created the psycho- psychosis. I mean, really, you know, somebody ought to get a loudspeaker before they open the gates and say, "Do y'all know what y'all are just saying? Just say that and leave it there." And then wonder what people will be like. Wait a minute, what did we just say? You know, a lot of times we we get in in a group situation and we just do things because that's what everybody else is doing. But maybe folk need to just be asked, for, "Do you really have any idea?" Somebody ought to buy your book and pass it out for free. Two hundred fifty. Who can we get? Y'all, we are gonna find somebody. We need to find somebody to buy her because I want her to get her money. We will find that book and leave it on every seat in <laughs> Churchill Downs. You know, um, and then then it would get even
1: more publicity. Somebody said they might about- get a billboard going. I don't know if it's happening. <laughs> that yeah, would be good. Yeah. Um, Tamika and her group did a great job with billboards after Brianna Breonna Taylor, um, that was, that was a, a big one. Yeah, and you know, in the city of Breonna, I'm so glad you brought up Breonna Taylor. I don't, I don't know if you did earlier. Um, this is super important. This is Louisville, Kentucky. We had eight months, nine months of, of, of every single day protests. We had people killed by someone killed by the National Guard, who was a beloved, you know, member of the community who, who who fed his barbecue to police and and neighborhood kids and everybody in the in just because something got out of hand at a, uh, at a after the curfew that had been put into place in our city, and we are we are a wound here. Reverend Mark, it is such an open wound right now and we need healing. What could be a better gesture of healing than to take away something that one uh, black friend of mine who was a member of the group of kids who sat in on our fourth Ave, fourth street where all the shopping was done, all the restaurants were, she, she did that as a kid and she has looked at me in the eyes and said, why? My family could never stand up for that song in all these years. she said, "Why, why do you love it so much?" And I think this I can help us you know find out why but also why we don't have to we don't have to hold on to traditions that don't work anymore no. uh, for us as a society
0: no, and this definitely is one and no, we definitely shouldn't. Uh, and and as my audience knows, um, you know the song a, Qu- a choir produced for Breonna Taylor is this show has been this show's theme song ever since she was taken from us. We call her name every day on this show in the opening and the closing of the show, folks. Um, this is a very uh, important uh, book that you should read that others should read, and and this book is even more valuable now as a result of the war against education and knowledge and CRT. So we invite you to check it out, spread the word, tell your family and friends about it. A great bit of summer reading for you from the author Emily Bingham, My Old Kentucky Home, The Astonishing Life and Reckoning of an American Song. Emily, thank you for joining us on Make It Plain.
1: I'm so honored. Great to talk to you.
0: And let's keep in touch too, in in your journey and and your reckoning as well. Okay.
1: I am so glad to make your acquaintance. I mean, this is great, and uh, I I just it you know I truly feel this is a book for white people to hopefully hear. But I am so honored that you have you know seen it and you think it has some uh, so add something positive to our discourse and. I will keep teaching and uh, we need, you know, like you said, we do need people all over the country. You're in New York. We need people all over the country talking about and standing up. And there are more of us than we think sometimes. So we, we're, we're going to keep doing it.
0: <laughs> Thanks for getting woke and listening to Make It Plain. As always, perform an act of kindness on behalf of an elder or young person. Write a letter to a sister brother who just so happens to find her himself incarcerated. Offer libations to the ancestors upon whose sturdy shoulders we all now stand. And above all, give thanks to the God of your understanding by whatever name you call her and him. All God asks of us is that we give each other love. Thanks for giving MIP love. And please remember to subscribe and give us a five-star rating. If all hearts and minds are
1: clear, it has been Made Plain.